Hey everyone, welcome to the YM Transfer Podcast. It's me, Chris Wesley, and uh, today's guest is my longtime friend, and I truly do mean that longtime friend, Tony Vicinda. Uh, you might know Tony uh, most well from his Catholic beard bomb. That's right. Uh, Tony, um, on a whim, started this little company called Catholic Beard Bomb um, that is just completely taken off, and there's so many great scents, and um, I am a huge fan and a loyal customer uh, for Catholic Beard Bomb, but Tony is much more than that. In fact, Tony and I met not over beards, uh, but we met because of youth ministry. He reached out to me when he worked for an organization called Bluefish and was running a ministry called Perpetual Youth Ministry. And since then, uh, we have just kept in touch, whether it's collaborating through projects like Project YM or just uh, at conferences or talking about assessments. Tony is probably one of the smartest and most brilliant outside-the-box thinkers that I know, and I can't wait for you guys to hear uh, some of his thoughts and some of his uh, opinions on where professional youth ministry is going and how we can grow to be stronger and better. So without further wait, grab those pens and those notepads. Here's Tony Vicinda. Hey, Tony, welcome to the YM Transfer Podcast. How are you doing, man? Good, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Hey, not a problem. Not a problem. Uh, for everyone who's listening to this, uh, Tony is probably the most well-known guest I've had on this show. Everyone else is just acquaintances. <laughs> Tony, you're like a lifelong friend, um, even though our lifelong friendship. Well, I, I guess, you know, how, how long have we known each other? How we have known each other. I want to say it's been over a decade now for sure. Um, even though we didn't meet for like in person for the first five plus years of that, that time. Um, yeah, I, around a decade at least. Um, what, what, let's yeah. see, it would be like, oh, oh, eight, oh, nine. So right yeah. around that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would make a lot of sense because, um, I was trying to remember where I, where I was in, in, in ministry in regards to, was I just already in high school? What was the state of marathon youth ministry as the blog and, you know, everything. And, and so the way that I know Tony is through perpetual youth ministry, perpetual youth ministry. Now that no longer exists, but Tony, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about what that was and, and how that got started? Yeah. So, uh, we used to go out and, and the concept was that, um, faith is continued intended to keep on, uh, moving forward. Um, faith is kind of this continual growth or perpetual growth, uh, process. And so we wanted people to have youth ministries that had that, that lens in mind. Um, but a lot of that was specifically like we would do um, different interactive components. So we would go to conferences and set up like on-site low ropes, engagement activities, look at their main stage engagement. We do workshops for youth ministers. We do leadership training, retreats, events, um, but everything had a kind of a kinesthetic um, or experiential quality to it um, that we use as a lens to unpack deeper, deeper themes, which still is a lot of the way that I do youth ministry. So this is, this is kind of the classic, um, you know, youth ministry, uh, do a game and then make that game have a point, but kind of cranked up to 11. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, definitely. And um, I remember you reached out because you, you guys like had a, a blog um, and you were looking for people to contribute towards that site. And, you know, again, I was, you and I, I feel like are some of the early adopters into youth ministry blogging. And um, it, it was just about trying to cultivate as much content as possible. And so, um, so yeah, uh, we connected through that. And then we had, you know, this is kind of one of the great things about um, powerful relationships, right? They go in and out until they find consistency. And then there was almost like this period where 
we didn't chat. And then all of a sudden our paths crossed again uh, during a period where you started this thing called Youth uh, uh, Rebuild 2.0, Rebuild My Church 2.0, which would have been around 2013, right? Because of uh, Pope Francis. Yeah, so that was it was that was the second one. So yeah, the first right. one I think was 2012 and then we did the second one 2013. Yeah, yeah, this is almost like a youth ministry when Harry met Sally sort of thing. Um and then or is that is that too uh too much information? Is that too personal? No, that's fine. I'll have what she's having. Okay, exactly. <laughs> um and then yeah, I uh, through actually a mutual friend Scott Miller, um uh, I was invited to give a presentation on one of the very first blueprint um, webinars that you guys were doing. And, uh, and I think it was just through that and, and, and then conversations kind of like what we're having now, except not recorded, uh, where we, uh, I, I actually remember there was a period of time where we would sit down on just a random day and just talk ministry, like via FaceTime yeah. or, or Skype or, and like any healthy relationship just over conversations. That's, that's how it formed. And we talked and, um, I think one of the things that always, uh, I was captivated by Tony is your extensive vocabulary. Um, you probably have <laughs> one of the best lexicons of anybody in ministry, not just youth ministry, but anybody in ministry that I know. So my big question to start this whole thing off is how did you develop such a wonderful and beautiful vocabulary? Thanks. That's a, it's a great question. Um, I recently had uh, a person in my parish who started doing this thing where halfway through a conversation, I would use like a, a $5 word mm -hmm. and he would say, we had this entire conversation just so you could use that word, didn't we? Like you started this entire thing just so you could use that word. And I was like, I, I, I didn't, but I start, I should start doing that. Um, you know, I don't know. My mom is an early childhood development specialist. Um, okay. Uh, so I, have, I come from a, a well-educated background um, with a, a parent who was very focused on education. But I think the big thing is I loved reading as a kid. I had a parent who really supported that. I have two parents. One one was fine with me reading a lot. The other one really supported it. Um, and the uh, by the time I was in third grade, I had a collegiate reading level. Um, and so because they, they make you do these tests where they like rank you mm. um, or they made me do that. I don't know if everybody has to do that. I had some learning, uh, learning differences. And so that may have been part of the process also. Um, but my reading levels were also uh, always very high. Like I scored an almost perfect score or a perfect score of one of the two um, on the SATs for verbal. Um, math was horrible, but verbal was great. Um, and so it's just it's just developed over time. But I read every book in our house. And so it was just the process of I kept on cranking up through whatever the age level was. So as soon as I would start a book, I'd look for another book. I got through all the kids books, went on to teen books. Um, I was one of those kids who did spend time. We had a, an encyclopedia set when I was a kid, one of the ones that someone uh, like either came to the door and sold us, or maybe we got it in the front of a Brookshire's, which is a, a grocery yeah. store down in Texas. Um, and I spent time reading the encyclopedia. I don't think I did the whole thing, but extensively. And so I think just over time, um, I'm a reader. And so um, you start to use the words you read on a regular basis. And I do have a policy where I will use a word, even if I have only 80% sure I'm using it right, um, oh, which okay. um, I think is important because you learn to use words based on, on usage. So it's okay to use a word and say, I think that's the right word. I'm not entirely sure. And then check and make sure it is or is not the right word later on. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not afraid to take a risk in that capacity. So some of those big words you hear me using, they just may sound right, 
um, one out of five of them probably is not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, that's okay because half of those words I couldn't even, uh, repeat to you, uh, to challenge you on. I, I'd be like, well, what does blah, 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 blah mean, you know? And, uh, um, so, but, uh, yeah, I mean, just the way that, uh, you talk about everything from board games to, uh, you know, deep theology, um, it just, it, it's on this like upper tier. And so, um, you know, but at the same time, anyone who knows Tony is, he's one of the most compassionate and, um, and caring people that I know. And, and one of my earliest memories of you is a, a vlog that you recorded after an NCCYM and just you articulating how much uh, you enjoyed the fellowship and the networking of other youth ministers and, uh, and sort of that uh, collaboration, um, that, that opportunity of community with them. So definitely so yeah i've vlogged for a hot minute that's a that's a good that's a good deep cut this is this is all this is a lot of tony vicinda circa like uh 2012 to 2014 uh, so. but, you know we can't we can't look over you know some of this uh you know we're in 2019 but we can't look over uh some of the rich youth ministry catholic youth ministry that happened in uh the first decade of this 21st century and into this early second decade of the 21st century so um absolutely not yeah because uh what i believe is uh you are one of the pioneers in regards to online communities and online networking and um and not just online but collaborative youth ministry uh something that we've kind of missed um something that that's heavily needed in today's youth ministry world because we see such burnout and we um see um, such um, isolation and, and silo ministry occurring. And so collaboration is key. Um, so with that, and if we can continue to live in the past just for a little bit longer. No, we can. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, you know, talk about that desire that need to start creating things like perpetual uh, youth ministry and, you know, later on with things like project YM and, and some of the networking and um, other things that you've done, like where did that desire that need come from? Yeah. So I, uh, I was an intern in youth ministry and we had a, a team of uh, three full-time employees, two college interns and one high school intern. So we had like seven of us six of us who were um, who were in the office at any given point in time. And so everything we did was collaborative. And even though, you know, like my parish growing up only had three people in the youth ministry office. Um, so, you know, only three uh, in Texas. And so my, my experience of youth ministry was uh, numerous employees plus a team of, of volunteers um, working together to, to put together a youth night or a youth ministry experience. Um, that was, that was my reality that I was kind of always formed in. And I assumed that was normal until I got to my first parish that had never had a youth minister before. And I was the first part-time youth minister at this relatively new parish and realized that the average uh, parishioner and the average, you know, pastor kind of looks at youth ministry as someone's problem. And it's usually that someone that we hired and they need to figure it out. And why would you possibly need more help? Um, you know, you can just you can just do more programs or you can, you know, spend more time or you can do whatever you need to do to make sure that 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 works. And so I kind of had this crash after really, you know, like a decade and a half of seeing youth ministry work one way into actual professional youth ministry where the average person is just sitting by themselves in an office feeling like they're the only person 
uh, who gets it, where you have these real questions that when you try to talk to other staff members about, they don't understand. Um, some of that's just age specific, right? Like they don't know what the most recent dank memes are, um, but they also don't know what, um, they, they may not be asking that essential question of, you know, how are we evangelizing people outside outside of the people who just show up on Sunday, right? Um, they may right. just thinking about the butts and the pews, or they might not be thinking about, you know, what the latest um, sociological trends are and how they're impacting the way that we're delivering a message on Sunday or, or inviting people into an experience of community. Um, uh, a lot of them are just executing the sim simple set of tasks that they've been given. Simple, not to mean easy, but simple just to mean like, hey, I've got a lot of clarity on what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm doing it, I'm going home. Meanwhile, the youth minister is oftentimes sitting there in anguish, just wanting to have more. And so I knew when I was in those community settings, most of the conversations that happened that were fruitful, most of the way we moved forward was by having conversations together. Um, you know, the, the six of us or some two of us and a couple of team members would get together and have conversations about where we wanted to see the ministry go. And so the simplest solution seemed to be, well, you know, first you start local, right? So let's get the diocese to see if people in the North End can meet. Getting youth ministers together locally can be really hard. At the same time, new platforms for technology were starting to emerge. Um, during, during that first parish assignment, that's when Facebook went from being uh, just kind of like a, a class listing service, like, hey, we all went to school together to be in an open public thing that anyone could hop on. MySpace before that, I, I had a Zanga account. I don't know if you had a Zanga. Pardon me. I don't know if you had a Zanga account or not. Um, no, no, I didn't. I yeah, didn't. Um, that's that's something that was pre-MySpace that I didn't want one, but a teen was like, you should be on Zanga and set me up with an account, something that is like in a risk reduction, like safe environment world today with social media. That seems like an insane thing to be like, yeah, here's here's the password I typically use for stuff like that yeah. uh, to a teenager. And I, and I was on it. I was active. I used it. They didn't have any idea what was, you know, was going on. But they, so so all those different things started to become play and the question just you know for me i'm a i'm a somebody actually at one point said you know there's two types of people there's artists and there's technicians and tony's a technician and i i i first really rebelled against that like i, I have kind of an artistic temperament i'm a creative individual but i am somebody who does love to pick up a tool and say what are all the different ways you can use this tool actually even though we met really kind of formally through some of those other things you mentioned the first time we ever spoke on the phone to each other was when i worked at bluefish and that's the, that's the place where somebody called me a technician for the first time because I would pitch different resources in completely different ways than they ever expected because I knew how they could be used within a different context, um, specifically within the Catholic uh, church. And so that's the first time I ever saw the name Chris Wesley with all these purchases from this Protestant company uh, next to it because he was willing to pick up, pick up tools and, and use them in different ways. And so, so that is kind of my way of thinking about things. So I started thinking, hey, how could we do this? Um, TED, TED Talks were becoming big at that point. I was like, what if we did something like that? But for mm -hmm. Catholic Youth Minister, something designed to inspire, um, something designed to cast a bigger vision. Um, and Scott Miller and I just had a conversation and my youth minister's brother um, did streaming video all the time. And so I said, hey, how would you do this? And this is, you know, this is 2009, 2010. So right. this is before you just turned on your computer and hopped on and streamed video. This is not... This is not normative at that point in time. YouTube was around, um, right. but that was for pre-recorded videos. So the concept of doing live videos or doing, um, you know, multiple source videos from from different people, um, or switching back and forth between live and pre-recorded, all those things were completely unheard of at that point in time. And I just asked him, "How would you do it?" And he said, "Well, I could explain it to you, or I could just do it for you." Um, and so this guy who gets paid 
um, you know, a ton of money to do streaming video, just um, has a heart for Christ and for ministry said, uh, I'll take care of it. You get the content pulled together and we'll also start helping you build this platform. That's how stuff like Rebuild was born. Um, so really just through, you know, we could call it luck, we could call it coincidence, but we could also just say, hey, maybe this is a movement of the Holy Spirit um, that really said, hey, this is a time and a place for my people, for these people uh, to connect in a new and different way and help to grow and build the church. And for me, you know, um, I'm sure there is a bit of dumb luck within that, but that dumb luck seems to center more around the Holy Spirit choosing me and choosing those involved in those projects uh, to make those happen more so than it does that it just kind of coincidentally um, all happen to work out. Well, and, and I do want to get into strengths and charisms in a second, but like, um, you know, just, uh, and maybe alluding to some of your strengths, you know, to be able to do that, yes, it, it's definitely the Holy Spirit guiding and prompting us right into those directions saying, hey, check this out, look into this, think about using that and everything. But is that something that has always been a part of your makeup, um, even as a, as a child to like, look at these earlier products that the rest of the world hasn't adopted yet or embraced. Um, and, yeah, I, that's a good yeah. question. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know. My parents weren't, my parents were not um, like tech early adopters themselves. My mom has become one as time's gone on. My dad is not. Um, the The big thing I think was actually that I, I didn't play with a lot of technology when I was a kid. Um, but I grew up in two acres in the suburbs. It's a semi-rural area, so there were a lot of lots of farmland around me. Um, I was a member of 4-H, so I grew up in kind of this this uh, pastoral like country or, or semi-rural context, right? Um, and we didn't have, I didn't have a lot of blinky toys, right? Like I didn't have right. a lot of video games. I didn't have a lot of other things. I had blocks. I still love wooden blocks to this day. I had clay. Um, I had a lot of stuff that you could use to make things. Um, and so everything was always something else um, in the way that we played, right? So whether we were playing inside, outside, whether it was a hot day in Texas, whether it was, you know, the middle of the winter, whatever, whatever it looked like, everything was always something else. You never, nothing was ever just what it was. And so I think from a young age, I was really trained to use my imagination uh, very intentionally. And that, that has been a huge part of who I am. So, um, you know, like I'm somebody who, who looks at things and I'm very comfortable saying, yeah, I know it's designed for this purpose, but it does this and this can be done here, 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 or this could be done this way. Or here's this other thing it does, which isn't the main thing it's intended to do, but it does it really well. What else could we do with that? That's always been kind of a way that I've been trained to think or have thought. Um, and so, because um, I don't think my mom spent some sort of extensive process indoctrinating me to think that way. Um, it's just kind of the reality of how, of how we did it. And then I read a lot too, right? So you're, you're always taking in these new ideas or different ways of thinking um, as well. So I think those two things paired up um, really are a lot of what caused me to have this very different um, look on things. Um, I never have been like mechanically inclined, um, but I, I have built a number of things, right? Like I've, I've never, like if you said, hey, fix your own car, um, that's not gonna <laughs> happen, right? I can change my oil, I can change a tire. Um, that's not a place where I'm gonna go innovate. Um, and so it's not super exciting for me. Um, right, right. But saying, hey, we need to build um, a dresser that's going to house this TV in it. And we can't just go buy something off the internet. And also we need it to be bright blue because we want it to match this color. Like I know how to go to Home Depot, get a color match, um, and then sit down and draw up plans to build that that cabinet that's going to house a TV back before they were just flat screens and you'd slap them up on a wall. Um, so that they would look very, very impressive, even if it was just a facade, right? So I could sit down and, and figure that out. And so that, that type of stuff I've always been very good at, even if I'm not 
super mechanically inclined. So saying, hey, what needs to be done? What are the tools we have at hand? Um, and how do we get from the tools we have at hand to where we need to go has always been something that I've been very excited about. No, and I can appreciate that because, you know, I think back to, you know, my, my desire to, to, to go outside the box and, and look at different things, you know, um, and to look at things that aren't conventional. And that definitely comes from my father, um, who uh, for a long time uh, was working in, uh, he, he worked for American Express for a long time, especially in the smart chip development before smart chips were really a thing, you know, and and his his father, my grandfather, uh, was one of the engineers on the um, uh, on, on some of the first computers. And so there's this like lineage, you know, whether it's um, inherent or just you know cultivated by culture to take things apart and to look at why things work and ask a question uh, like, tell me more, you know, uh, how how does this work and why does this work and and then going to people and saying, tell me more about this, you know, bre- breaking things open and, and allowing things to, to work. And, and it's such a, I think, an important part of ministry. And this is where I think a lot of youth ministers get stuck, where a lot of, not just youth ministers, but church ministers get stuck, where we hear that cliche phrase, that's the way we have always done it. <clears throat> and um, and that's, we, we say that because we're not willing to say, but is it the way that we should keep doing it? You right, know? right. Yeah. Well, and, and the, you know, the other thing is there's such a risk averse culture. Um, there's such a, there's such a, both American and within the church. And, and there's a, like, there's a level at which is like, that's good. Like we should, we shouldn't be taking these things lightly. Like in no way, shape or form should we be cavalier about physical or spiritual or emotional harm to people that's substantial and significant. Right. right. Um, but we should also be willing to say, Hey, failure is a real part of the process of growth and iteration and coming up with the best idea. And so we have to be willing to, to go out, try something and have it not work. We, we have to be willing to be all in on something, um, pushing as hard as we can and knowing that it might fail, not work and that that's okay. And, you know, I used to, um, for my youth leadership teams, um, I used to, I used to manage them in that respect. Like I would never let anything that was event breaking cause they, if they were planning an event, let's say a, like a lock-in, I mm-hmm. would never let anything happen that was going to break the night. Right. Like right. I would never let a, a be like, Hey, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, you know, create a scaffolding across the top of the worship center and do like blindfolded jousting competitions <laughs> up there. Like that would never have been a conversation. Right. Right. Um, the, the reality is though, if I, if I would remind them of things and say, Hey, you need to think about blah. And they go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they didn't. Um, that was okay. It was okay for them to, to mess up, for them to screw up, for them to not have everything be perfect. Like we had a group that wanted to make shirts at an event one time. And they, they wanted, um, you know, everyone to bring shirts. And I asked them numerous times if they had told people. And they said, yeah, 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 we've told people. Well, who they told were the other, like, high school leaders. They didn't tell the middle schoolers who they were putting on the event for to bring a, a shirt with them. And mm-hmm. so, like, their their shirt-making station was was not was not successful because no one had a shirt right like that was the thing right. like, i think four kids who just had shirts they could turn into that whatever and an undershirt on made shirts but nobody else did and that was fine like they it was a oh so next time we need to make sure they know to bring the supplies right and it was one of many activities throughout the course of the evening it wasn't a big deal they weren't upset no one was upset and so it just was a, an easy move on thing but they needed that failure to know hey here's actually how we do things right the next time and and we're oftentimes way over concerned with every th- perfection um, mm-hmm. rather than 
than some of that iterative process. And it's okay to actually have those, those small failures, or even sometimes those big ones for us as adults, um, to, to actually get where you need to go. And I think that's another huge piece in that. So just kind of going back to that story, um, did you know that they were going to fail at that? Um, had you as a leader picked up on the fact that they hadn't clearly communicated uh, to I, I, the middle school students? Yeah, I as a leader knew there was nothing on the form about it, like the, the flyer that they designed, right, and okay. did a good job with. I knew there was nothing on that about it. Um, I knew that they, they said that they had told a lot of people. And I said, well, we listen on the flight, but that's okay. We've told everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and again, there's the ability to probe evenly. And I had, I, we, had, we had five management, five leadership teams, each with their own kind of focus based on comprehensive youth ministry, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so like my job was really to manage the entire group. And so I never would get mired, super mired down. And so if they told me they had done it, I was totally comfortable believing them that they felt like they had done a good enough job. So I was probably about, 60% sure um, that they had not done a good enough job. Um, but I trust people well enough to say, hey, if you really feel like you have done a good enough job, then I, that 40% is enough for me, right? Because also, mm-hmm. it wasn't the biggest part of the night. It wasn't the main thing. It wasn't the only thing that was happening. It was kind of a background activity. And so over the course of the evening, people were able to make shirts or they won't, doesn't make or break the event, right? And right. so that's that's the big thing. Like it wasn't it wasn't the only focus of what was happening. Now, if it's a, we're going to make t-shirts night, that's a way more important thing. That's a way more directed piece. That's a, hey, you, we've got to make sure we have t-shirts on hand or that people are bringing t-shirts with them. And what do we do about the people who can't, right? Like that's, that's then the conversation. Um, as one of 20 activities at a, at a you know, six hour long event, um, that was kind of just a background activity. It wasn't, it wasn't enough of a concern. Um, but yeah, I was pretty sure they weren't. And I was pretty okay with the fact that if they felt like they'd done a good enough job, I wasn't going to fight with them about it um, because right. it wasn't an important enough thing to have an argument about with them or to undercut them on in that situation. Uh, and I had a parent call me out on that specific situation, which is why it stands in my mind. Like um, not one of their parents is a parent who was part of the ministry team who also felt the same way but didn't say anything to me and didn't say anything to them just quietly sat in the background and was ready to watch it burn so that they could be upset about it afterwards. And I don't like, I was fine with it. Like the teens were fine with it. This parent was enraged by the fact that I was willing to let them fail because we should never set a kid up for failure. And I'm, I, I think failure is an, a part of life. I think failure is an important part of life and spiritually knowing how we process through that is important. And so I don't program to eliminate it. I would program to eliminate it and uh, to make sure that the essential things happen, knowing that everything else is something that can can either happen or not happen, right? So if you can think about this like the 80-20 rule um, a little bit, um, the, what is that? The, yeah. uh, the Pareto, Pareto principle. Yeah, yeah. principle. And so um, like the 20% of things that are essential to go right, that's where most of my energy goes. The, the 80% of everything else, um, you know, like if somebody else is managing one of those things, um, if, if I've got a teen who I've empowered to take that on, an adult who I've empowered to take that on, I'm not going to micromanage them, right? If they're part of that 20 per- core percent, I would. So the teens who are giving um, some witnesses that night, they they were well 
rehearsed, well prepared. They they had been meeting for you know weeks in advance to go over it to practice and to rehearse well, making sure we had enough adults set up for that night. That was not a question mark, you know, thing. Like it's a, it was a it was a late into the night event. Wanted to make sure we had two shifts of adults because it was a, a long period of time, and wanted to make sure that that was well managed. Um, the big activity out on the field that we had advertised for after dark. Like I wanted to make sure that was safe and secure and going to go off like a hitch because I knew that's what teens were going to talk about the next week, you know, um, opening prayer, closing prayer, worship, other things like that. Those were things I wanted to make sure worked. Um, the, the 20 different activities that, that were going to happen during the course of the night that were smaller that, um, that were managed by individual groups or groupings of teenagers. Um, those were things that they were empowered to kind of figure out on their own. Um, and then report back to the large group about and to be asked questions about to kind of refine that process. And, you know, out of, out of those 20 uh, things, I'm sure, I'm sure there's another one that didn't work perfectly, right? Um, but 18 of them went well um, and didn't require me to say, I have to be hands-on with all this stuff. And those two that didn't, nobody was upset by, right? It was easy to look at and say, here's what didn't work right. Here's what we could do better next time. All right, if we want to do this again in the future, here's how we're going to fix this, right? And that's, that's it, you know? So uh, you've got to avoid those breakdown experiences, right? Um, you've got to make sure, like for me, like you think about retreats, um, like lots of people love the idea of teens having these breakdown moments. Um, I love the idea of God having breakthrough moments, but a teen having a breakdown moment and God having a breakthrough moment are not the same thing mm-hmm. um, a yeah. lot of the time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they yeah. can be. God, God works, right? Um, but, um, you know, so some people will say like, hey, like one of my things when people are planning retreats, like did you give them the option to sleep eight hours? If you didn't give them the option to sleep eight hours, that's a failing on your part. Now, if they didn't sleep eight hours, right? That, but there was the option to sleep eight hours, like that's not necessarily your fault, but I plan at least nine hours of downtime, make, knowing that the average cabin, right, is gonna take a little bit of time to, to get down to sleep. And when I walk through and do cabin check at the end of the night as the youth minister or the team does, I was always like, hey, you have the option to sleep eight hours, right? Um, if, you're, if you're in bed within the next 30 minutes and asleep, you'll hit that. If you're not, then you won't. And everybody here wants, needs to be able to have that option. So please don't keep everybody up around you, right? That was just kind of my, yeah. my plea to them was not like, it's lights out. What the heck is right. wrong with you, right? It was just like, don't be a jerk to everyone around you. If you don't need to sleep that much, that's fine right? Figure out what to do. That's not going to keep everybody else awake around you. Um, And it was an easy management process, right? So other things would be like making sure everybody eats and drinks enough water, right? Um, Making sure that there's kind of recovery time for introverts, right? As well as for extroverts, because they do need it also. Um, and, And just that people are well handled and well taken care of on their basic essentials so that when you get to that Saturday night experience, it's not about whipping people up into an emotional frenzy. It's about creating a space where having retreated from the, the busyness of their everyday life, God can speak into them in a new way, right? Whatever that happens to be, whether it's a, a talk and adoration, whether it's a different type of prayer experience, whether it's just a time of, of intense community, like those are, those are the types of things that we know God enters into in a new way um, for a lot of teenagers. And that's fine, but if they're just doing it because they're tired and they're dehydrated and everything else, that there's a big question mark whether or not that's actually God breaking through or whether that's just them having a breakdown, right? Um, and that's where you start to see a lot of those retreat high things. And so those are, those are on my list of essential things when we go on a retreat is everybody sleeps enough, everybody eats enough, everybody drinks enough water um, so that um, we can make sure that what's happening programmatically um, is actually set up to, to do God's will and to glorify the creator and not just to 
make sure people end up crying on Saturday night, right? Um, well, yeah, and that, that's like the whole style of ministry. I mean, that, that's something that, you know, when I think back to my days as a teenager in ministry, it's it's like you go on the retreat and on Saturday night, it's that pinnacle moment where you, uh, where there are no dry eyes in, in the place because, you know, either because you're sleep deprived or put in an opportunity where you just feel remorse or guilt over your current life and, and everything and you break down and then it's like, the retreat leaders come in to swoop and build you back up and, you know, powerful moments, but not necessarily always healthy moments. Right. And, right. Um, and, and, and if, and if, you're yeah. planning that, if you're planning that, that's manipulation. Like right. that's, I mean, like that's describing what it's like to brainwash people. If they, if this was a, if this was a military action, it would be brainwashing people, not, not, Hey, this is a great Jesus moment. Right. So, I mean, anytime I talk to youth ministers who that's, that's their thing is, Oh, we do this, this thing that utterly shames someone so that we can build them back up or, Hey, we get them exhausted. So they'll be more receptive to information. Any of those types of things are huge, are huge red flags for me. And you'll hear people say pretty much verbatim that. Um, And it's shocking to me that as those words come out of their mouth, that they are not more aware of how, how toxic and how tragic and how hurtful that is to that young person, first and foremost, but to the entire operating message of Christianity secondarily, like that, that that is not what we are called to do. Like people are going to experience shame and breakdown and, and naturally over the course of things. And that's, that we should absolutely be there to pick them up, but we're not a lot of the time. And so when we're not actually engaged in people's everyday lives and we're not actually ministering to people out of a sense of relationship, then we start to manufacture these experiences on our events and on our programs, because then we can make sure we're there at that time when it's convenient for us to build them back up and pick them back up rather than looking for those moments in their everyday life that are, are brought on by somebody else and helping let the gospel shine into those things. And that's, I think for me, the hardest thing is it's not just about the fact that we manufacture those experiences. Though that's horrible. It's the fact that that's systematic and symptomatic um, uh, of the reality that we're not engaged in their daily lives when those things happen anyways. Well, right. And, and, you know, um, I, I think, like, like you said, for some of us, that's not even intentional. We don't intentionally do that, but we have to be aware of that, right? Because if you're not inten- intentionally trying to manipulate or, or create a culture, but you do, it, it can communicate to your teenagers, to your families, like what is um, healthy when it's really not, or what is success when it really isn't. And, you know, I, I've heard this a lot recently and would be interested in your thoughts, just how so many youth ministry structures or programs are built more for extroverts and not so much for introverts or are built for like really one type of student, like energetic, out front, social, and not so much for people who are a little bit more um, introspective and um, self-reflective and quieter. And for a long time, you know, we were trying to build up these, and I think we, we sometimes give it the wrong term. We say large group ministries, but it's not really that, but we create these uh, high energy, um, you know, out in your face sort of ministry structures. And we end up losing a lot of teens and even families in an unnecessary manner because we're not considering um, the impact that some of our decisions have on different types of people. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's uh, I think that's a real issue. And the hard thing is, unless you actually go into your mission field, right? Your your school cafeteria at your local high school, the the football games you go to, walking in the street, going downtown and going shopping. Unless you enter into 
your mission field, as well as your events and your programs with with a real intentional eye towards young people who aren't going to run to the front when it's time for a vo- to volunteer for something or who aren't going to be excited to jump up and give a talk or who aren't going to be outspoken about their needs. Uh, unless you've got an eye for young people who, who aren't going to do those things, the only ones you're ever going to see, the only ones who are gonna, ever going to be engaged in your ministry are those who will. Um, now, the, the reality is those young people will, will always still do all those things. And so creating those opportunities for them to jump up, to be excited, uh, to run up and be engaged is, is always going to be important uh, and part of this. But the question is, how do you take that quiet young person at the back of the room and make sure they know you are equally important? Um, you are seen, you are heard, you are known, you are loved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that, that extrovert's receiving that by running up to the front of the room and being received and seen and everything else. That introvert, it's a completely different conversation. And saying, saying I left you alone is really, really not the right response, right? Right, right? Well, you seemed like you were an introvert, so I left you alone. That's my way right. of showing you I love you, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a reality that that's sometimes the right response. Like, you, they're having a hard time. They say, I just really need to be alone right now. And saying, like, hey, like, I don't want you to be alone, right? Like, I don't want you to be alone. I want you to know, like, we're here for you. But if you need time to yourself right now, I totally get that. Like, that's okay. Yeah. And we can right. make sure that happens for you. Right. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I think that's really important. And I actually think like, I think introverts are better small group leaders than extroverts. Um, and so my, my introverts and my youth ministry have always uh, been my first choice for, for small group leader or head small group leader, like the person in charge. And oftentimes kind of taking extroverts who might want to dominate the group who are kind of their co-leaders to task. Um, because an introvert, like I've seen a teenage introvert who was stepping into small group facilitation for the first time, intuitively understand how to use her, her body language to invite people who weren't speaking in the group to speak, Mm. because that's, that's what she was wanted. She was waiting for someone to actually give her bodily attention, like to turn her shoulders towards them, to make eye contact and to actually make that invitation rather than just saying, Hey, like, does anybody else have anything they want to share? No. Okay, great. Next question where I can talk for a couple minutes and then, and then pretend to let y'all talk. Right. Um, like she was, she was just naturally adept at managing the entire group without even saying, you know, Tim, do you want to share? She would just give Tim her full attention. And so if Tim had something he wanted to share, he was able to, and he also wasn't put on the spot verbally to be accountable for having to do it. So um, I think part of it's identifying good places for that. I think thinking about how we do group dynamics is a huge part of that. And I do think about how we have silence incorporated into what we do is just as important as how we have, have noise. Like um, intentionality is so much more important oftentimes than energy. Cause sometimes I want a low energy, right? Sometimes I want a casual energy. Sometimes I want an upbeat energy. Sometimes I want, you know, a, a frantic energy like during a game or something else. Um, there's, there's these times where I want these different types of energy to come to the forefront. Um, but you can't just be hyper stimulating everybody all the time. And introverts are really good at knowing what those other ways of being are. Um, and I think specifically thinking about what are your prayer practices within your ministry can be a good way to think about that. Yeah. Um, So we would rotate through four different types of prayer that were prayers of the church as a way of engaging different temperaments. Mm -hmm. Some of them had spoken components. Some of them were guided reflections. Some of it, sometimes we would do sacred silence. Right. And so um, it's interesting to go back and talk to both introverts and extrovert teens years later about how those different types of prayer impacted them. Um, And it's interesting because it's no one group loves one type of prayer. Like they're usually more comfortable with one type at the beginning or, you know, towards the end, 
but extroverts love sacred silence after they learned how to enter into it just as much as introverts did right and so um i think i think those things are really important considerations when we look at that well and what's important is giving people um exposure to those things because on paper right like yeah sacred silence does not sound attractive to to some extroverts like i remember the first time i was uh, invited to go on a silent retreat i, I remember thinking to myself like oh, I'm, I'm gonna absolutely hate this and actually ended up loving it um because of how much i learned about myself because i actually could shut up and listen <laughs> mm-hmm. to what god was saying in my head and and i you know i think that's one of the challenges that we have in youth ministry is um not to make assumptions but like you said be intentional and and, and guide people through things but also not for certain results um uh, but more so uh to to give them that opportunity to grow and learn um i, I, I want to take a, a sort of a pivot here um a little related but um um definitely uh uh, changing directions in regards to uh, strengths and charisms. One thing that, um, you know, I've always appreciated that you've done um, in your positions in, in local parishes, uh, especially in your, your last role was uh, using strength finders, right? And, yeah. um, and also not just using strength finders, but knowing a whole bunch of things about a whole bunch of different assessments out there, because I think you and I can agree that when it comes to assessments, uh, there's no shortage of what you can and, and can't <laughs> from your Facebook. What Disney pr- princess are you most like to um, the more scientifically done ones like strength finders and, um, and uh, MCOR and things along those lines. So um, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about like how you started to uh, incorporate uh, assessments into ministry and what were some of the best ones you found and uh, what were some of the things that you used and why other people should use them? Yeah, so um, in, in, in youth leadership formation is one of the earliest kind of attempts I had at, at doing something a little bit more intentional as far as assessments went, which is not uncommon, I feel like. I feel like that's a lot of times the first time that if you, if you were a Catholic in the uh, you know, teenager in the 90s, um, the likelihood that you at some point had to do like some sort of leadership assessment, whether that was figuring out what type of animal you are, a basic mm-hmm. Myers-Briggs or whatever, um, they, uh, at some point you probably did because at that point in the history of the church, we were oftentimes mistaking leadership and discipleship for each other. So if we had a lot of leaders, therefore we had a lot of disciples. Uh, I still think that's an easy temptation today. So that's not a all, all you, you know, uh, more seasoned vet, vets out there, that's not a stab on you. I'm where I am because of you. Um, uh, it's an easy, easy temptation to think leadership equals discipleship. And so, uh, and, and there's, there's not any good teenage-based assessment for that kind of stuff. Like a lot of people love um, uh, like called the gifted. They don't, it's not good for teenagers. A lot of people love strength finders. There is a teen version called strength quest. There's a couple modifications for it, Um, but um, it wouldn't work for middle school students, right? That's why we get a lot of these kind of like low level four quadrant, you know, kind of, um, Hey, here's, here's what you are. Myers-Briggs is actually one of the ones that I think does work best for, for middle school and high school students, even though Chris knows that I, uh, I secretly hate Myers-Briggs. That's exactly, that's exactly what an INFP would say. That is a big comment coming from you. Yeah. You know, know (laughs) I avoided when I said more scientifically based fact ones that I avoided (laughs) being Myers-Briggs because I didn't want to offend you. You didn't want to trigger me. Um, but no, I, I, I agree that, uh, um, you know, um, 
I forget the name of the test that all these assessments are based off of, of their validity, but Strength Finders is um, above Myers-Briggs and that and, and is one of the top ones. Um, but it's also, you know, you're talking about personalities versus strengths. Yeah, um, no, I, they, they all have, they all have different purposes. And I, right. I actually, like I said, it, crapping on the validity of a Myers-Briggs test is something that only an INFP uh, would do. Right. Um, yeah. So like it's, it's totally in line with, with my Myers-Briggs temperament to feel that way about it. Um, the, um, um, so, so, and a lot of these are just, you know, based around kind of self-knowledge. So a lot of times it's, it's, you know, starts off with kind of this leadership moment, movement of saying, Hey, we have these leaders. What do we want to do with them? We want to give them better self-knowledge, help them understand how to be set better leaders. Let's look at what corporate America does. Well, corporate America uses a lot of these tools. Um, and so, which I think is good. I think there's a, a level at which we have to know, like if God made us to be a certain way, if God made us as unique, non-repeatable creations, um, no test is going to tell us the fullness of ourselves. but all these tests can show us something about ourselves and that self-knowledge will help us operate as sons and daughters of God in a new light. Um, so one of the ones that I am, I am, uh, I'm a big fan of, like you said, it's Strength Finders, which is done by Gallup Institute. Um, you know, um, there's, there's, there's Myers-Briggs, there's a lot of different ones, but I use Myers-Briggs with teens uh, overwhelmingly because it's easier to access at a slightly younger age. Um, I would, wouldn't do the full test because it's a very long test. The modern, the modern full Myers-Briggs test is very extensive. Um, and um, I would use, you know, kind of a snapshot one. Um, and we'd actually use it kind of dynamically. So we talk to them about what does that say about your prayer temperament? And there's a great book out there called um, Prayer and Temperament um, that is out of print, but it's, it's yellow with a green like floating dude on the cover. It's horrible graphic design, like <laughs> yeah. only the early, early 80s, late 70s will give you in the Catholic Church. Um, um, but it's, it's a great book on how different parts of Lexio Divina or different types of prayer might impact different people based on their Myers-Briggs temperament. Um, understanding kind of some of those, those you know, um, different elements of how you interact with each other, but also what your normal modes of operating are, are really good for teenagers who just typically don't have a language for that, right? Mm -hmm. They might know that they get frustrated about certain things, but they might not notice what those consistent things that get frustrated are. They might notice that they get tired sometimes, but might not have a language for why they're getting tired sometimes. Um, you know, and so the the reality is it starts to give them a little bit more of a broader self-awareness and it gives them a better sense of language and it creates a common leadership language. And I think this is my number one reason for, for still really harping on this for parishes is you need to have a leadership language and you need to use that leadership language consistently. I don't even care if it's, if it's Myers-Briggs, Strength Finders, Called and Gifted, whatever it might be. Um, pick, a, pick a leadership language for your community and use it. Pick a leadership language for your ministry if you don't manage an entire community or have that kind of thing or control because um, that gives everybody the same kind of starting point to talk about how they want to interact with each other and, and what they're good at and what they're not good at. And so rather than just trying to stand there and kind of approach this kind of false hubris about, um, you know, well, I'm not, I'm not really, you know, good at anything or, oh, like, you know, I'm good at things, but let, let's not focus on that. Being able to look at a teenager and say, no, you're good at these things or, or you are naturally called or feel good about doing these things, right? And here are other ones that you're not always going to be as competent at, and that's okay, um, is hugely free. Um, it's hugely freeing, especially when people view there being only one way to be a good disciple. Um, they're like, hey, if we're all supposed to be like Jesus, well, Jesus is one person. Therefore, we're all supposed to be like the same person. And, and if anybody's holier than me, 
the way they're behaving is probably the right way to behave. And so I should just behave like that person in order to achieve holiness. Um, it's, it's a real major struggle and issue there. So um, for me, it became a little bit less at that point with that understanding about leadership and more broad application. Like I want teens in my ministry to know what they're, they're gifted at, to know what they're good at, to know how they're made uniquely and individually. And so, you know, Myers-Briggs, um, uh, my actual, like, one of my big things with it, it's, it's, it's roughly four quadrants, which we'll see with, like, DISC, Myers-Briggs, and a lot of other tests. Um, it's, they're broken down into kind of four major quadrants, and Myers-Briggs has smaller ones. DISC has some way that they interact with each other, all these other things. Um, but there's not a lot of sense of specificity to it. Like, here is how you are unique. Strength Finder is one of the things that immediately attracted me to it is um, the huge data set from which they operate, um, for one thing, but the fact that that gives them a lot of ability to talk about the uniqueness of any individual's test results. And so um, if we just look at people's top five strengths, which is what you do in Strength Finders, right. um, only, only one out of every other quarter million people will have um, the same strengths as you do in any order, right? Where if I go into a room of people and take the disc, we're all going to get split up into, into fours. And depending on what group it is or why it is, we're going to end up in four different groups. If I go in and say, hey, who has the same strengths as me in a room full of, you know, 100 to 200 people, um, I'm not. I'm not going to end up in, in a group of four. I may not find anybody who has any of the same top strengths as I do, which is unlikely. You're going to find one or, one or two in common um, with, with a number of other people. But um, I'll find no one who has the same top five in any order, right? The same top five in the same order is even more unlikely. You start to move that out to the top 10 strengths, which is really what we operate out of. Um, and you start to enter into the order of, of multiple millions of people who will not have that in common. So the uniqueness of strength finders is actually, for me, was one of the huge attractive points about it because it helps people understand that they were this unique, non-repeatable creation, right? That was made a certain way. And was good at certain things. And it also gave people permission to not just try to get better at the things they were bad at, but to really focus on the way that God had gifted them and let them operate out of that. Um, and uh, I really love that. I love that language. I loved walking through it. Uh, we use it for RCIA uh, candidates. I use it in confirmation uh, classes. We use it before as they were going through confirmation. It was kind of like something we do at the very beginning. So mm -hmm. as we were processing through things, they could think about it. So it was basically like take the test on your own um, for strength finders. Then we would come in and we would do hardcore Christology um, as the first class. It was youth and parents, right? right? And then the rest of the time was spent around sensitizing them to the gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit in their life with some sort of catechetical component that, that met the requirements of the sacrament, right? So right. Um, it could be like, hey, we, we're going to talk about wonder and awe today, um, but we're also going to talk about uh, the magisterial authority of the person of the bishop who's going to confer the sacrament of confirmation on you. And that might seem like a weird pairing, but that gift and our understanding of the authority of the person of the bishop actually stem from some of the same aspects of who God is. Um, and so grounding those two things together make a great conversation. But it also lets them start to approach using and understanding the way they encounter those, that faith and those gifts um, in the context of their own personal strengths and their own personal giftedness. And so it was something that started creating a really strong, strong element of discernment for them, um, of knowing, hey, here's how I can actually start to look at where God has gifted me, where my faith is, and how those things are butting up on each other. It let, it let grace build on top of nature. And then when we got to the mystagogia component at the end, where we invited them to look at where they're stepping and how they're proceeding in ministry after confirmation, um, it gave them kind of a natural inclination to say, look, here are my natural gifts and strengths. 
um, here are the gifts of the Holy Spirit that I really felt moving in, uh, moving me as I, as I kind of, we kind of journeyed through this process. Here's how some of those things meet up. Um, and here's different places in the parish where I can actually exercise those things. Um, really actually was a huge, helpful conversation. Now, not every teen followed through on the plans that they made during that mystagogia process, um, you know, but, but being able to actually have language to have the, the next step conversation around it was absolutely huge in a lot of the way that we did that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love strength finders, um, you know, but I am, um, I'm an ideation strategic uh, individualization, which is somebody who would love uh, this type of stuff, uh, empathy and connectedness person. And so those are my top five strengths. And so, um, which also explains a lot of the other stuff we've, we've talked about throughout the course of these, those five strengths. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it kind of makes sense. Uh, I was about to ask you, um, but just from sharing your strengths, uh, it makes sense, but you can elaborate on this is selling this idea to your parish, right? I mean, um, and, and it's not so much uh, the idea of using assessments in ministry, but I think where a lot of us get stuck is we have these ideas. We want to try these things. We want to take risks, but then we use leaderships. Um, let's just say lack of trust or um, whether it's trust in them or trust in um, uh, trust in themselves to, uh, to be able to implement or try these things out. So, you know, you're, you're trying these outside the box ideas, these outside the box um, methodologies. Um, and how are you earning the trust or how are you uh, gaining that opportunity to, to use them and test them out? Yeah, historically, I wasn't. I was just more so like no one cared and no one caring is almost as good as trust, right? So, so um, it's almost like ask for forgiveness <laughs> over uh, permission because... Yeah, uh, it's like as yeah. long as you don't break anything too bad, right. um, you probably won't get yelled at, but maybe you still will anyways. Okay. Um, you know, it was really funny. Like I remember at one pair of somebody saying, you know, it's never the programmatic stuff you do that we have an issue with. Like your theology is fine. Like the the strategic choices you make for the ministry are great. Like it was always like, but like uh, last week we had a had a foam like dart fall down in the middle of the worship service and that can't happen, right? Uh, or it was, could you just could you just wear like nicer clothes to work, right? Those are always things right, I got right. in trouble well, for. And, that, and that's the thing that's annoying, right? Because um, and that I think that comes back uh, to the lack of evaluation systems that we have oh, in man, our parishes, yeah. right? Because, you know, um, we I, like I can think of all these things that I've done in ministry before, and nothing against you know my my pastors, former and present, but like or, or leaders. But you do all these things, you work your tail off, you, you're taking these risks, you're so worried about success and failure, and then someone comes by and says, "Oh, by the way, you shouldn't wear flip flops at that meeting," or like. Right. Right. You know, your beard is getting a little too long. No and, such thing. I'm true. I'm like, really, really that right. No. And, and I agree with that, but it's like, really, that's what you're going to critique me on. That's what right. you're going to comment on me. Like right. is not all these. Other, so you must think I'm gangbusters and that the only thing that you can really critique me on are these really surface minute uh, sort of details. And, and it's frustrating because while it's great to have that sort of quote unquote trust, um, at the same time, if we're not receiving evaluation and critique on, on the things that actually matter, we're, we, can, we can find ourselves in a, in a place of complacency and uh, get stuck in the same old routines. Yeah. And oftentimes what it signifies more than anything else is they just don't know. Like they're right. not critiquing us on our clothing and, and other things because 
we're doing gangbusters. They're critiquing us on it because they don't know what we're doing a lot of the time. And right. so they're going to critique us on the things that they can easily see when we walk through the office. And I, that particular situation, I was like, sure, tell me what, tell me what you want me to wear. They're like, we don't feel like we should tell you what you, you have to wear. I was like, but you are. By telling me I, I, you don't like the way I'm dressing, you're telling me I can't wear the things I'm wearing. I need to wear something else. So tell me right. what those things are so I can do it. And, oh, no, no. Like, we don't want to go that far. But, right. but I'm asking yeah. you for it. Like I'm, at, I'm yeah. legitimately saying, if you give me a standard, I will try to meet that standard. I'll fail at it. That's fine. But at least then we can have a real conversation around those things. Right. And so, yeah. So how do you operate for trust though? So a, a big part of that, I think it's hard because a lot of the time in ministry circles, it's not so much that um, about how you build trust as, as it seems like an articulation of how you don't lose it. Um, and so that's, that's why I say like, you've got to let people know what you're doing. So communicating your mission vision, Figuring out how to communicate the actual wins of your ministry is the big thing. Like if you don't tell people what's important, they'll tell you what they think is important, right? And so uh, the the ability to go in and say, hey, you know, we had we had 15 new teens show up to, to youth ministry this, this week um, is a type of number that you can give them that will then say, hey, we're not actually judging wins based on the total number of young people. We're judging the wins based on the number of people who new people who showed up, right? That's that's just a simple example that's still numbers based. Um, better is still like, hey, I'm sitting down and I had two conversations with teenagers this week about how they had real breakthroughs in their prayer life, um, you know. And um, I'm I'm totally fired up by that because you know the entire focus of of our year this year has just been getting teens to pray. And so the fact that I had two teenagers come to me on their own and share this with me, and I'm not their small group leader, is a huge win. It means they were excited about it, amped up about it, and that they're actually doing the things that we're asking them to do in their daily life. So right. learning how to communicate those things are, are way more important as far as actually building trust. Um, but I think, I think you know, with, with all things, uh, start, start small, right? So um, I started with a leadership team um, and, and saw what doing these type of assessments did in their life. And right. so then proposing that to the larger parish is a whole lot easier. Um, uh, saying, hey, we've seen this really dramatic growth by this level of self-knowledge that teens have. We've seen way more engagement. They're staying involved after confirmation. Um, so what would that look like if we actually did it with their parents and with the wider community? Or what would that look like if we just made it something we did for all ninth graders, you know, like... Uh, or anybody who's who's who comes into the parish after ninth grade, right? Like um, everybody who's in high school or above, we invited to go through this type of assessment process, um, and then we were able to tie that back to the way that we're operating as a parish. Um, and so the, that also requires documentation on your part. Like youth ministers are horrible about writing things down, but it, re it requires us to sit down and say, look, if I want to be able to say, here's the fruit that we've seen out of this, I've got to be able to measure that. And lots of times that's going to be me actually documenting and recording what were things like before we did this, what were things like afterwards, or getting anecdotal responses, which, which we might think of as witnesses, right? Or we might think of as stories um, about why or how we know uh, this worked. And so, um, but I, uh, I am, um, the, the biggest change I've actually seen, and, and I know you were going to, we were going to talk about this a little bit is strength finders was huge in helping people know who they are, like how they were made, like how they're wired. But the, the assessment tool that I love the most, which unfortunately is, is very hard to do with teens, um, is, is called and gifted, which is a different right. type of assessment tool entirely. Like it's about, you know, we talked about Myers-Briggs being temperament versus, you know, strengths. Right. Um, this is strength versus charisms. Right. Right. And if, if strengths tell us a lot about how we were wired and, and, and what we're, what we, and who we are and what we're good at, um, 
in my experience, charisms um, tell us what we're supposed to do with that within the church. Like what does God want us to do and, and is calling us to do with that specifically within the church? Um, it's a set of 34 charisms, common charisms by the, the Catherine Sien Institute. Um, it's been around for forever, but it's having renewed vigor because of the success of forming intentional disciples. Um, uh, the called and gifted process has become incredibly popular again. They just, they just digitized it. It's great. I would still bring somebody out to do it. Um, but we had parishioners, our parishioners who went through strength finders and learned who they were and then went through called and gifted and learned how is God using those, those natural talents to mm-hmm. build up the church, uh, were set free in a completely different way than I've seen anybody else within their ministry uh, and within their discipleship journey. And a lot of that is um, going back to that statement of like, hey, lots of times we just look at who's the holiest person I know. If I want to be holy, my goal is to be like them, right? Um, yeah. If you're not them, that doesn't work, right? If you're not similar to them, that doesn't work a whole lot. <laughs> so um, called and gifted, some of, the, some of the charisms are things like healing, uh, or intercessory prayer, or discernment of spirits, or things that sound inherently supernatural. Right. Some of them are things like administration, or hospitality, or craftsmanship, that are don't sound inherently spiritual, right? Um, and so, I remember a a parishioner who had who had done strength finders and, and gotten a lot out of that when we did called and gifted a couple of years ago for the first time at our parish. Standing up at the end when we were doing observations and said that for the first time today. And this is somebody who is, you know, in their uh, 70s, probably. They felt like they were really a Christian um, and that their way of experiencing faith was okay. And that if it didn't look like everybody else's way of, of living out discipleship, that that wasn't bad. Like that they weren't bad because when they pray over people, those people aren't healed right? That administration or being hospitable or service and outreach um, were just as important as all the other parts of the faith that we do um, when, they're, when they're properly surrendered to God for the building up of the kingdom. Like that, those things are all equally important. And I think that's such a huge message for us in youth ministry is, and for the church at large, just to know, like, look, it's not, it's not admins versus creatives. It's not, it's not direct ministry versus, um, you know, like uh, office staff. It's not any of these things that we oftentimes make it or let it be. It's about saying, hey, are we letting God take the, the basic elements of who we are, right? Are we surrendering to the him, that in him away that lets him supernaturally multiply and magnify that um, for the building up of the kingdom? And uh, for me, I love using strengths and charisms both because it's really fun when people have like a charism of administration, which is one I don't have. Um, you know, like the, uh, the ability to say like, Hey, like, what are your strengths? And sometimes those people also have responsibility or higher executing strengths. And sometimes they don't, sometimes they're just really good communicators. And the way that they've really helped administration grow is by helping make sure messaging is way clearer in the office and people actually know what they're supposed to do because the processes were already in place, but nobody knew how to navigate them or nobody knew what they were supposed to be doing. And so sometimes you'll see a little bit more of a correlation and sometimes they're, completely different than each other. And so it's always this really interesting kind of journey to go on with people when they've done both of those assessments um, because they, they, again, they target to kind of very different things, but I think one builds on each other very beautifully. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, it's almost like you could write a book on choose the right assessment for your church or your ministry. (laughs) Maybe we can make an assessment. Maybe we can make an assessment that's designed to help parish. You find your right assessment. Choose the best assessment for that. There there you go. There you go. We'll call it the Vicinda method. Um, You know, man, there's just so much to talk about. I mean, we didn't even we didn't even scratch the surface on um, things like Catholic beard bomb, which is uh, like uh, one of your big jams in in regards to something that I love the story, right? Of how um, you just had leftover chrism oil, right? And yeah. uh, and you, and it was it was not blessed. It was just regular chrism oil, and uh, you mixed it with your beard balm, right? Yep. And. Yeah. Uh, and now, and now it's huge. And now, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm bringing it up one because uh, I'm not only fascinated by the story, I am a happy customer as well. And so there's your little plug for uh, Catholic beard bomb. Um, you, you just got the St. Joseph's blend. I've been, I've been waiting to hear from you, like your oh, feedback, your input. It's, it's fantastic. I, I think it's uh, something that should be uh, a regular. I know uh, it was just kind of released for, um, you know, for Father's Day, but um you know, I, I enjoy it tremendously. And it, you know, it, I think I've, I think I've now used every single, um, of your, your main, um, products, uh, or, or, um, scents, I guess, right. They're called aromas, scents, like aromas. How, yeah. Aroma. Aromas. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, of them, I'll, I'll, if you want, I'll rank out what I think are my f- favorites in the mainstream. Hit it, hit me with all it, right. yeah. All right, cool. So number one for me is Lexio. Um, just in, really enjoy Lexio. Um, and then Chrism, because Chrism is just a classic. Um, Orthodoxy, uh, because uh, I'm a big GK Chesterton fan. Um, Holy Smokes and then Franciscan, uh, yeah. which, you know, Franciscan just is, it's... It's unscented. It's unscented, so there's nothing no offense to our franciscan uh friends <laughs> there's just nothing to enjoy there so um but and then i've liked these uh these little one-offs that you've done and everything um you know t- tell us a little bit about like uh you know I, obviously i just shared how it started but um like some of the things that you've been doing with beard bomb uh, with barbus beard bomb um, besides just selling it, um, like what other opportunities or, or things have popped up since you've, uh, created this awesome phenomenon? Yeah. So a couple of things, and this, a lot of these just come from, again, operating in my own strengths and my own charisms and, and things you don't necessarily even think about until you kind of look back at them. Um, two things I noticed, you know, we've been able to funnel hundreds of thousands of dollars into supporting Catholic youth ministry um, across the globe uh, through through Catholic Bombco. Uh, uh, historically, all of the money now, a portion of the money, because we have to run a business better, um, <laughs> goes to uh, supporting Catholic youth ministry um, around, the, around the world. And so a lot of that's through Project YM, but a lot of times it's been through other partnerships, donations, supporting other institutions financially. Um, and, uh, and we're able to do that um, because of the support of all the people who buy beard balm or lotion bars or lip balm or any of the other things that, that we make. Um, and so that's, that's a huge and very obvious one. Um, but we get these amazing stories from people. Um, we've currently got a group of about 1,400 men and a slightly smaller women's group um, that gather once a year during the month of November when no shave is happening to do something we call the Nazarite Challenge, which is um, just a, a month where we focus on, in addition to, to physical health, spiritual health also too. Um, we launched a podcast this last year called uh, Bearded Virtue and then one for women called Virtue Riot that was all around uh, growing in the virtues in our daily life. Um, we're actually going to start rolling that out 
as a a monthly podcast the rest of the year that uh, my my good buddy Bobby Angel um, is going to be co-hosting with me. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, but we hear stories from these men all the time. Like we had a guy this year who like halfway through the challenge, maybe not even um, like posted to the group that he quit his job um, and he quit his job because he realized that he had become an alcoholic. Um, that he was wake, woken up still hung over at work from the day before because he and his boss would just start drinking together. He had replaced his worship of the Lord with the worship of his boss as an idol. Um, and uh, yeah. just like his only way to do it was to, to completely break. So it took a, took a step out in faith. It was like during the week we were talking about uh, uh, temperance and, and then we did prudence. Uh, and he just like prudentially like I have to quit my job. Um, and I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I do know that I'm supposed to do this. Uh, and he quit and he went to confession that afternoon at his local parish. And it was the first time he had uh, gone to confession in like over a year. And he was back at mass the next Sunday. And Tim, Tim is still doing great. He's, a, he's an amazing part of the community. I get to watch these guys kind of over the course of a year go through a lot of growth and changes. And um, it's been amazing. We have numerous people who will have emailed us about healing um, uh, emotionally and spiritually in their marriages uh, based on this. We have a number of babies that people attribute to our bomb which is always, always a little awkward and how to take that um but people who've met their spouses and other stuff like that just just beautiful stories that come out of the way people are engaging in their faith and sharing their faith through just having beard bomb or lotion on yeah no um and it, it's crazy right because it starts out as something so simple um but because there's a, a vision and a mission you know, you know, not just scenting men's beards or, uh, you know, and there's other things too, like lotion bars and lip balm. And, uh, I love your intercessors. Um, but like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an opportunity to create community and, and, and to invite people into something bigger. And I, I think, you know, what I appreciate about, uh, not just about Catholic beard balm, but about you, Tony, is the fact that, um, it's it's about reaching out to not just the next generation, but other men and women who are in the trenches of ministry, other men and women who are, um, you know, grinding it out, trying to make everything work and 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 letting them know that they're not alone. You know, and um, I, I have to say part of where I am today is because of people like you, like you reaching out when it was at Perpetual Youth Ministry. And just saying, hey, let's connect, let's talk ministry, and let's uh, let's be iron sharpening iron um, in that way. Um, so uh, with that, um, I just uh, I have a couple of like lightning round questions I want to ask if you're up. Okay. For All right. Okay. Cool. Cool. All right. So uh, sticking with Catholic beard bomb, this one's specific to you. It's not one I usually ask my other guests, but um, what is a scent that you thought was going to be really good? on paper, but then as you started to put it together, it just uh, was awful. Um, our Mother's Day aroma last year was because a lot of people told us they really wanted something with spikenard and really wanted something with mint. And those two things theoretically go well together. And I just thought it was horrid. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can sort of see that. All right. That's, that's good. That's good. Um, in regards to, uh, you know, leaders or learners, and you mentioned before that you're reading, but this can go beyond books. Uh, what's something that you're either watching, listening to, or reading right now that's really challenging the way that you approach, uh, leadership? Um, the, um, uh, I'm going to pull up a podcast real quick, which isn't specifically about leadership. Um, yeah. but is one that I just started tuning into yesterday, but I've already like listened to five or six episodes of it. Um, yeah. 
It is the Jonathan David and Melissa Helzer uh, podcast. Um, the guys over at Catholic Creatives recommended it. Um, and it's just, it's like them preaching and speaking at events or sometimes they'll just sit down and have a conversation. Um, so it's totally just, just spiritual. They're not, they're not Catholic, um, but they are people who are really disposing themselves to what the Holy Spirit's asking of them. Um, and I, uh, I'm simultaneously like, you know, like any leadership book has its own, its own jargon, right? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I get caught up in the jargon. Like, I'm just like, okay, like I understand what you're saying but you're also just use the same word like six times in six different ways really quickly. And I don't know how I feel about that, but I'm, I'm really, <laughs> really uh, enjoying that. And then uh, the gospel comes with a house key. I'm on my second way through right now because of a new project we're working on. Cool. Cool. Well, you know, and, and to uh, the first podcast, your comment there, when we don't have a, an extensive vocabulary like yourself, uh, Tony, um, it's very hard for us not to oh. and reuse words. They're, they're doing it for a specific rhetoric purpose, which we can, we can also step back to that comment about brainwashing earlier. Yeah. It, it has a similar feel to it where like, you're just repeating this in slightly different ways with slightly different meanings until I get hypnotized and just believe everything you say is how it feels. Not, not that they're using it incorrectly in any one of those okay. ways, but they're using it as a, 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 a rhetorical device, a rhetoric device. Um, um because rhetorical is not right in that situation um right. they're using it as a device of rhetoric in order to drive a point home <laughs> yeah bugs the, bugs the crap out of me but it's, well, it's, I, it's really good though all right last question uh if you had a superpower that you could only use in youth ministry um that was only good for youth ministry what would that superpower be um by location just so i can get all my office hours in <laughs> And uh, uh, I could also go with multi the multiplication of the pizzas. Um, just order, uh, nice. order. Uh, just go to one of those places where you can buy pizza by the slice for two bucks, and then be right, like, right. like, hey, we're just gonna we're just gonna bless this, and then all three hundred of you teenagers can eat this one piece of pizza. Um, and so, well, uh, you know, um, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but have you ever heard about pizza vending machines? No, but I'm I'm typing it into Google right now. I've heard of cupcake um, vending machines. No, so um, my my alma mater, Xavier University, um, had the first. I don't know if it's the only, but it had the first um, pizza vending machine um, or ATM as they call it. And uh, um, to me, like I haven't looked into it as much, but part of me recently has been like, this would be really cool to install in our youth ministry. Um, to have a pizza vending machine because then, you know, um, all you have to do is stock it, you know, every single week, but uh, the kids then can just take it out, pay for it themselves. Right. And uh, split the slices accordingly. Um, so, yeah. So, so whether or not, whether or not this is the actual one, I'm going to describe the process of a pizza vending machine right now. The machine makes dough from scratch by combining mineral water with a flour mixture. The machine mm -hmm. then kneads the mixture into a dough that it flattens into a 10 inch pizza the pizza mm -hmm. is now topped with organic tomato sauce via a mechanical arm. This mechanical arm now tops the pizza with cheese and any additional desired toppings. Each machine has three to four topping choices, such as pepperoni, bacon, mushroom, etc. The machine is finally the pizza is finally placed in a 700 degree infrared oven. There's even a viewing window so you can watch your pizza bake. This entire process takes under three minutes, and each pizza is priced at five to six dollars. That's uh, right. Yeah. This phenomenal machine originated back in Italy in 2009. It slowly made its way through the UK and is being integrated into America as the American, into the American vending machine tradition. 
Well, and, and it says uh, it prepares a vegan dough too. Um, so um, it's 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 friendly to not just uh, carnivores and vegetarians, but for anyone who uh, just uh, wants uh, wants that vegan flavor uh, or lack thereof. Um, but yeah, no, it just it, it kind of cracks me up, and especially the you know five bucks of pizza for under three minutes. Um, that's not bad, and uh, you know according to this one article, maybe I'll put this in the show notes. Uh, 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 about Xavier University, uh, they it makes about thirty to thirty-five pizzas a day. I mean, that's what they were selling at Xavier, or seven hundred and fifty pizzas in a week. Uh, so that's not that's not too bad. Um, that's not too bad. Although that math isn't really. Oh, initially it sold seven hundred fifty pizzas in a week, um, but it's kind of cooled off uh, to thirty to thirty-five a day. So that's not too bad. Um, you know. Uh, yeah, and you got to you got to wonder how often you have to restock that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But a pizza vending machine um, in your youth room could be a pretty cool uh, thing. I don't know how expensive it is, but maybe we'll look into that and uh, add that in there. But anyway, I'll, I'll throw this out. Anyone who gets uh-huh. a pizza vending machine in their youth room and hires Chris and I to come out and do some work at their parish, we will each buy a pizza when we get there. There you go. I'll, you know what? I'll I'll pay for yours, and uh, we'll we'll make that too. We'll we'll make it four pizzas total. There we go. There we go. Sounds there good. There we go. Um, all right. So Tony, uh, again, great talking to you. We 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 could have talked for like maybe twice as long, but uh, anyway, appreciate you being on the show, and no uh, thanks for being here. Blessings.